the question that reporters report on becomes, did the person deserve to be killed? And the way that they dig into that question tends to be to pull up all kinds of damaging facts about damaging facts and in some cases speculation about that person's goodness, I guess, uh, about that person's, you know, whether or not they're, they were a good person. I think that it's safe to assume that we're all hosting unconscious biases back in that reptilian part of our brain and knowing that, understanding that and and naming that in ourselves as we engage, whether it's directly with other people or whether it's with media that we're consuming. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with a special two-part podcast focusing on how journalists can avoid bias in covering acts of violence between the police and people of color. First up, I talked to Rinku Sen, president and publisher of Race Forward. After that, I talked to Juhu Takral, director of law and advocacy at the Opportunity Agenda. These two organizations teamed up with the Advancement Project to release a best practices guide for journalists in the aftermath of the recent shootings of five police officers in Dallas, Texas. We've talked a bit about diversity and covering race issues over the last year or so. I encourage you to check out the episode 165 of It's All Journalism. It's my interview with Baynard Woods of the Baltimore City Paper. It's a great conversation about how that paper innovated in covering the uprisings that followed the the death of Freddie Gray. Before we do that, though, here's my interview with Rinku Sen, followed by my conversation with Juhu Tukral. So first of all, um, what can you tell me about the mission of Race Forward? Our mission is to generate the awareness, solutions, and leadership required to achieve racial justice. And we do that through three different kinds of programs, three different kinds of work, which are uh, media and journalism is the first set, and Color Lines is our biggest offering on that front. We also do research both into how policies and institutional practices and different arrangements affect communities of color, but also into social change practice and what works and what doesn't so much. And then our last set of programs are the practice programs where we work with people across the country who are trying to move the needle. And there we provide trainings and consultation and also um, do a big conference every other year called Facing Race, which is coming up in November this okay. year. Okay. So why did, why did Race Forward, the Advancement Project, and Opportunity Agenda think it was necessary to send out the best practices for journalists email? Well, all of us follow the news on communities of color and race relations really closely and work to improve things on that front. And watching the coverage of the last couple of years, while knowing a lot ourselves about the actual situations Uh that are being reported on, because we all work on police or criminalization issues and work with communities of color, we could see that there were lots of inconsistencies and lots of um, bad practices. So in a report that Race Forward put out a couple of years ago called Moving the Conversation Forward on Race, a couple of things that we identified in that report as harmful media practices included, one, the problem of 
losing the system in writing the story. So really individualizing all of what has happened and obsessively trying to answer questions like was the, you know, was the police officer involved in a shooting racist or not, you know, and then there are only two answers to that question, yes or no. And if, if the reporting doesn't go beyond that one question, what it was in the mind or heart of the officers uh, involved in, in the shooting of a black person, for example, then what the reporting doesn't get us to is what the systems are like. And there has, in fact, been a fair amount of decent reporting out of the mainstream media about policing as a system. But the initial stories after a shooting tend to not be about systems. And in order to get reporting on systems, people end up pushing really hard. So police officers have been killing black and brown people for a long time, for a long time. And it's only in the last two years and, and not at the beginning of cases like Eric Garner's or Trayvon Martin's that we get real systemic analysis. So, so leaving the system out of the story is one issue. And another issue is creating false equivalency between the killing of civilians of color and the killing of police officers. So, you know, we know that there's a systemic problem that leads to the killing of black and brown people by police officers. There is not yet evidence of a systemic war against the police. So we felt the need to put out this document after Dallas in particular because we wanted to provide the media some guidelines which don't really seem to exist. Now, many of our guidelines are basic good journalism, but they they needed to be put out in this context, in the context of all of the churn our country is going through in understanding how frequent such killings are and how little is done about them. So how, how would you describe the the way the media has covered Rich-related shootings over the last few years, and you mentioned Trayvon Martin, and you know, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray. I mean, these are recent cases, but you know, as you said yourself, you know, the the killing of, of black and brown uh, people has been going on a very long time. In that context, has has the coverage changed in any way? I think that the initial coverage has not changed significantly in decades. And one really big problem with the initial coverage is that the person who has been killed gets investigated, but the police officers don't. So the person who has been killed has their mugshot. You know, often the very first image is of a mugshot uh, that we see. Often there's very little the question becomes the question that reporters report on becomes did the person deserve to be killed and the way that they dig into that question tends to be to pull up all kinds of damaging facts about damaging facts and in some cases speculation about that person's goodness i guess uh, about that person's uh you know whether or not they they were good good person. And what doesn't happen, so this gets us to some of the false equivalency issues, 
if that happened, and also we got these long stories about the officers and complaints that had been previously made against them and other situ, you know, violent situations that they had been involved in, where they came from before they went to the police department, if that was happening simultaneously, then we might be able to call that digging into that question fair. But that's not what happens. What we get is a lot of shaming of the person who has been killed and a lot of silence or protection, um, you know, protective quotes and things like that about the police officers involved. And so that was something we really wanted to dig into. And you'll you'll see there's a section in our best practices guide about about images to use and not use and not rushing to the mugshot because that's um, that's like the most sensational thing you could get. That kind of representation of the victims of police shootings without a corresponding representation and digging into the records of the police officers creates a real imbalance in the coverage. Okay. And we're talking, just talking about the equivalency aspect of it. I mean, there's a, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, that there's sort of, a, in many ways, a systemic a problem with uh, many municipalities in getting any crime information out there. Um, and it's difficult for the press to access to access that stuff. And certainly, many jurisdictions are very, you know, close to the chest when it comes to police-involved shootings about what information that they're going to allow to get out there. Quite often, journalists is at a disadvantage that if you're relying on the police to give you certain information, they may be very happy to provide you with, you know, criminal records or or of the victim or or mugshots of the victim. But they may then turn around and say, well, this is an internal investigation. This is something we need to handle. And once we get to the other end of it, we'll hand in our report, you know, and that will that will have overseen everything. And so a lot of times it, it, it's down to the, you know, the elected officials to to try to, you know, come up with new ways to sort of open up those um, those windows and those gates that allow that that information to be more publicly available. Right. So one um, significant factor in that flow of information are the agreements that police unions have with their employers, with the employers of police officers. Written into contracts are often these uh, kind of secrecy clauses that limit the amount of information about officers involved in these shootings that can move out. And I mean, one way to think about balancing that is like if it's an internal investigation, then don't release anything. Don't release any mugshots. Don't release criminal records. If you can't release things about the officers, don't release things about the victims either, given that it's still an investigation. Another thing is that reality does put the onus on reporters to go do more reporting, not just to take the easy stuff that comes out of the official channels, but to go into the community, to meet the family, to, you know, to talk to students and teachers and friends and co-workers of the victim. But that is often not what happens. And I think our rush to break a story, to be on top of the news often leads reporters and editors to take these kind of shortcuts and um, to get things out fast. But what they 
what they know they can get and get out fast is the official story. And I think thinking a little bit harder about how to get the unofficial story on the first take, as opposed to making that the day two, day three, day four story, which we know gets less eyeballs, fewer eyeballs than the day one story is a way to manage newsrooms differently and uh, these news assignments differently. And I, I do understand that there are trade-offs for mainstream media sources in particular and day one sources, which is takes you a little longer potentially to get the story out. But if reporters are trained uh, and editors are trained to deal with these particular kinds of stories differently than there are a number of things that you could put into place. So reporters can work on building relationships with community organizations sort of ongoing so that if something happens in their, in their city, they already have a set of contacts to reach out to about it and they don't have to like start from scratch building those. So those are, those are a couple of ways to approach you know, building the capacity to still be fast, but to get a balanced story out there. Yeah, we we had done a story uh, at the time of the uh, the Baltimore uprisings. We we had spoken to one of the uh, the reporters who was covering uh, it from uh, the Baltimore Weekly paper. And you know, one of the things that came out of it is you know the you know, mainstream press, who, the the big press who came in to cover this story when it became big, when it kind of blew up, sort of helicoptered in. And it was actually kind of up to the local reporters, the people who were pretty much embedded in the community, who'd been there a while, and who'd established these relationships to really kind of tell that broader story. Yeah. yeah. You know, lots of reporters I talk to and meet with, they do think about cultivating sources over the long term, but their idea about who are good sources tends to be elites and people in named positions of power. And we, we need to have a much broader sense of who is a good source and what, what multiple people in a community might say about an incident like this, a, a shooting incident or the, a killing. They, um, in our thinking about what makes a good source, we need to be more conscientious, I think, about getting to people whose voices are not regularly in the media, are not regularly in the press, who are harder to find, who are not sophisticated sources. So you have to work with them a little bit more as a reporter and help them understand things like being off the record, when you can be, when you can't be. And, you know, I went to journalism school at Columbia when I was in my mid-30s and had already been working as a community organizer for about 15 years before I went to journalism school. And one of the things that we learned was that if you're, if you're the reporter and you're working with an unsophisticated or a, um, a source who just doesn't have a lot of media experience, it is your responsibility to make sure that they know what they're doing <laughs> um, and to explain things like, for example, if a source asks whether they can read the story before it goes up, any responsible reporter would say, not just say no, but also explain why. 
you know, if we showed you the story before it went up, we'd also have to show it to the police chief before it went up. And, you know, you have to trust our reporting for, for its accuracy. And I will do my best to, to make sure that it is accurate. But that, that was the way I was trained as a reporter. And that's the way that I approach sources that I know are not accustomed to talking to the press. Now, the the uh, the fact sheet that you put out that came out after the Dallas shootings, and, and we've since had uh, the shootings in in Baton Rouge. What were your concerns about journalists linking the shooter, you know, originally in the Dallas case, to the the Black Lives Matter movement in in describing the the incident as some sort of race war? You know, it was just complete speculation, and it is not the case that there is a race war against the police. In fact, we know from statistics that most police officers who are shot and killed are shot and killed by white men. And there have been some very high-profile conflicts between armed sets of white supremacists and anti-government people. The anti-government thing and white supremacy often go together in situations like the Oregon standoff or going way back uh, Waco but that those incidents are never described in terms of race war and certainly not described that way at the moment that the first thing happens. So it's just really irresponsible speculation. There was in Baton Rouge, for example, there was really no evidence that the shooter was tied to Black Lives Matter at all. In the Dallas shootings, there was no evidence of a tie at all. And so to put that out at a time when our country is dealing with so much churn on the race front, deeply changing, fundamentally changing demographics that are going to have us as a majority people of color country in within a couple of decades and in, in many places where that has already happened and the context of new and well-deserved, really necessary attention to police killings of black and brown people. It's just really irresponsible and inaccurate, out of context, and um, sensationalized. So that's the kind of thing that really raises racial tensions. It makes it, it makes the discussion that for example, black workers have with their white co-workers at the workplace really tends. And it just, it escalates things in a really unnecessary and untrue way. And that, that, was, that was what we said just cannot continue to be done. Now, I will say we have a lot of sympathy for police officers who are killed on the job. And we you know, vigilanteism is not something we support wherever it's directed. And it seems to me that you can report, you can report on the harm that is done to police departments and to police officers, to their families, to their communities, without tying it to Black Lives Matter and to protest movements that continually avow their nonviolence and that continually disavow vigilanteism against police officers, you have to pick that fight in order to go to do good, solid reporting about shootings and killing of officers. 
it's the same set of standards that you would apply to the shooting and killing of people of color by the police that you just you don't want to speculate um, unless there is actual evidence of a systematic people of color led attack on police departments then then don't speculate that such a thing exists and yeah don't speculate that such a thing exists and it probably means that that's not going to be your story because there is no such no such conspiracy and no such systematic war on the police. Resist the temptation to run a big headline that says race war uh, on your front page to try to sell papers or try to stimulate some sort of conversation or clicks or whatever. Responsible journalism has to trump eyeballs. It has to. And um, these are struggles that I imagine reporters and editors had with, you know, publishers and, and folks who are, whose main job is on the business end of journalism to make sure you have a big and growing audience and to make sure people are paying for your, your reporting. And so those are not new struggles, it seems to me. Responsible reporters and editors have to stand up for, for that, for best practice and resist the temptation themselves to be driven by the desire for a front page story or a big headline or a Pulitzer and just do good reporting. How can, and, and maybe you just answered it, but how can journalists better represent the humanity of the victims of these shootings, both the police and the, the um, uh, black and brown uh, people who were killed? Well, over the long term, I think that the most important thing reporters and editors can do, as well as like photo editors and caption writers, the most important thing that they can do is understand the concept of implicit racial bias and develop tools for fighting it on the daily in their in the course of doing their jobs. So one thing that we know from the last 10, 15 years of brain science is that we may not be consciously racist. I may think I, you know, if someone asks me, do you hate people of color? Do you think they're all criminals? I, my conscious mind knows enough to say no. But there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in our unconscious minds that are deeply aggravated by the need for speed. So uh, our unconscious minds make very rapid associations split-second, nanosecond associations between color and uh, wrongness, color and bad people, you know, uh, dark color, I should say, and bad people. And we're not even aware, our conscious minds are not aware that we are making those decisions. And yet that, that set of associations that we make very, very fast in, our, in the hidden recesses of our brains deeply affect our behavior. There's all kinds of science that, that reinforces this and supports this. And there are ways to intervene in implicit bias, both in the moment and over the long term. I think that's actually the most important thing that editors and reporters could do to improve their coverage of people of color who are killed by the police. Because that having a set of checks on my first instinct about what to write and how to represent these people just it makes us stop and think and that's what creates the interruption 
uh, of our unconscious bias and inevitably, for sure, will lead to better, deeper reporting. Okay. Th- thank you, Rinko. Uh, this has been a this has been a fascinating conversation, and, and I think an important conversation to have. That you know, journalists need to check themselves sometimes when they cover these very important stories. You know, not that you know all stories are to some degree have uh, some importance, but something that that's this sort of vital uh, when it involves life and death, and when it involves um, matters of race and and violence, violence against uh, you know police and, and others. You know, we need to take care. We need to 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 pay attention to what we're doing and, and our processes, and question ourselves to make sure we're doing the right job, the, the, our best job. Yep, and we can do it. Um, the tools are available for us to do that. There are tons of resources, and I really, really appreciate your having me on to talk about some of the ones that we have. So first of all, could you could you give give me the the, the background of the opportunity opportunity agenda and, and and what your mission is? The opportunity agenda is a social justice communications lab. We are based in New York, but we work nationally and and regionally with partners throughout the country on issues related to opportunity and our initiatives are around criminal justice, immigration, and economic opportunity, specifically poverty. We work with people who are in the field uh, doing all kinds of work, whether it's advocacy, organizing, policy analysis, and we work with these cohorts and groups of partners to help them create new narratives that will change hearts and minds. And a lot of our work is around either taking issues that are at a tipping point and helping amplify them so that we can make real change around hearts, mind, and policy, or actually in some areas helping to create those tipping points because we see that there's an opportunity, there's a lot of excitement and work happening in the field and the kinds of communications and cultural strategy work that we do can actually help make a difference. So I, I would imagine, I'm going to ask you about the email that you sent out, but that you saw that there there's a tipping point with with this dialogue that's going on in the public right now about, about race, about um, uh, police shootings, about violence, and you and the other groups that were involved in this or your organization, you know, that's why you wanted to address this. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, tipping points get created in different ways. And unfortunately, this one has really grown out of tragedy and a repeat of tragedy, maybe not even more so that than what we've seen in the past. But, you know, I think that the rise of, of social media and of digital reporting has really helped activists find each other and amplify what's happening so that uh, we don't need to go through traditional mainstream media to tell stories of people who are being shot, killed, or abused by, you know, police or others in law enforcement. And, uh, you know, the rise and actually the telling of the story and then the ability of activists to come together has helped create that tipping point. Okay. So the, the reason I, reach out for, I reached out to you is uh, I, I received through, through my office this press release that you had sent out that was specifically targeted at journalists to try and uh, get them to think about the language which they use to cover racially charged uh, issues. And this came in the aftermath of 
uh, the shootings of police officers in in Dallas. So why did you, you know, it's not just your group, it was Race Forward, the Advancement Project as well. Why, why did you all think it was necessary to, to put this out? Well, all three of our organizations are groups that are very much deeply rooted in racial justice as a lens throughout our work. And also focusing on narrative and media representations. And what we've seen consistently is that after there is a shooting of a police officer especially, there's a real rush to talk about the shooting, the the context around it, and the the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, in a way that isn't always well thought out, that can sometimes lead to salacious reporting, and isn't always taking time to to stop, reflect back, and think about how unconscious bias is playing out, both in terms of individual reporting, but then in the larger media storylines. Okay, so I I could see that where someone, a reporter... Uh, you know, with with the shooting that happened in Dallas, and again the the one that happened just in Baton Rouge uh, yesterday, where mm-hmm. they might suddenly, you know, oh, okay, this this is somehow linked to Black Life Ma- Life's Matter. This 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 is somehow linked to some larger narrative, or you know, you know the in the aftermath of uh, the Dallas shooting, there were you know a couple of salacious headlines. I think it was the the was it the Daily News who had the. Uh, the the headline it was um, uh, race war. You know, it was the New York Post. Oh, pardon me, Post. One of, yeah, yeah. Or it was one of them. So, what was the, the message that you wanted to get out to journalists specifically? Well, I could speak to that specifically in the sense that this is very much a reminder to go back to you know what are what are your ethical obligations as a journalist in terms of telling a story, telling the the specific story of this moment of this shooting, but then also putting it in this larger context for your reader that really recognizes the the history of racial injustice, of, of racial t- tension, the history and the current moment of nonviolent protest and movement building. And, you know, I mean, I'd say that that's specific to to this issue, but, you know, I can also relate it to a lot of my work is very much around sexual violence, trafficking in persons, um, the human rights of sex workers. And what we see over and over in in that area as well is that there is often this rush to tell the most salacious or titillating story. And, you know, again, even taking a bigger step back, I think a lot of that is about the way that media and journalism has been downsourced in terms of you know how many reporters are out there now working as freelancers do not have the same security and employment they had you know a decade ago or a generation ago and this this need to create you know whether it's clickbait or to bring eyeballs to your story so that you can actually keep functioning financially i think that's all a big piece of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what really kind of struck me about this, uh, the email that you sent out, which I thought, which I admire what you did, because I think it, it, it's very much about, look, you know, before you go out and you cover these things, why don't you think about, you know, the way that you're doing it and how the languages you choose to tell a particular story or the images that you use to tell a particular story 
may actually sort of cloud what the issue is or cloud what the story is. For example, if if if, if someone who is involved in a in a shooting either involved in shooting a police officer or is a victim that the photos that you use to illustrate your story, oh, they're, you know, the, this person was was arrested for a completely unrelated crime. You know, uh, there's a photo there. I'm going to go ahead and use that to illustrate my story. But, you know, that in of itself and making that choice, you know, that colors what the what the message is that you're sort of giving across the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what it's doing is also, again, triggering these implicit biases people already have and playing on past storylines and past narratives around who engages in criminal behavior, who does not. One of the things that I think is really important in all of this, and I think that goes to why it's important for journalists to be taking that step back and examining the angle of mm-hmm. the story they're telling or, you know, again, the visuals that they're using to accompany a story is this notion of who is and is not given the the status of, of being a victim. And again, in my background around sexual violence, we talk about this a lot, who's the perfect victim, right? And, you know, whether it's in sexual assault cases or trafficking cases, there is a certain benefit of the doubt given to people who fit an image of somebody who's never done anything wrong, somebody who is 100% perfectly innocent and idealized. And we see this very much around shootings, uh, particularly of young black men, um, where you've got this notion that we've been fed through the airwaves that, you know, the, the black men are committing more crimes and therefore police are somehow correct to be in this heightened space when they're policing black men, when the reality is that Black and brown communities are overly policed at much, much higher levels, at much higher rates, and therefore people are going to be drawn into the net of the criminal justice system through arrests, mugshots, convictions, simply because they are the subjects of more law enforcement touches and engagements. And more scrutiny. Yeah. Exactly. So the the idea that that the brown and black people are are targeted more that yes. and not even just a matter of targeting, but you know how that influences the interaction between the police, but then also in the reportage of whatever the particular incident is. You know, a lot of this work that we've done around you know, media representation and in the, you know, in the context of criminal justice work also comes out of research we did on black men and boys. There's been a rise in, campaigns to really promote around education, safety in a criminal justice system, that kind of thing, the awareness of just what a vulnerable situation black men and boys have been placed in. And you see consistently that that the role, again, you know, you know I've said this a lot, is that the role of, of implicit bias, whether it is in police officers, whether it is in employers, whether it's in journalists, and, you know, whether it is in, you know, people who are just creating community connections, that that actually makes a difference in how people act. And it's why it's so important that journalists really do what's needed, like from a truly ethical place to tell the story and tell the story of 
individual people who were being shot and killed by the police in the larger context of the history of how policing works in our country. Yeah, we've we've done a few podcasts over the last year or so about these issues about Ferguson. Um, and I had a reporter in here following uh, the uh, the Baltimore uprisings, and, and I say uprisings because you know that was that came out of our conversation. Is you know this is how the, this should be kind of perceived, but is not necessarily reported. Uh, by the media at large. Mm-hmm. And, and when I when I posted that story, this is kind of interesting now that I think about it, uh, one of the responses I got back on social media was like, oh, you know, that these aren't these aren't uprising, these are riots. You know, I look I can look on TV and this is from a a, a journalist. I can look on TV and I can see the people who are who are, you know, you know, destroying property or, or whatever, they're rioting. So I guess calling into question my question about there's riot, there's action, but there's a larger story going on. And if all of your all of your doing is focusing on one aspect of it, you're kind of limiting your scope as a reporter, and not seeing the bigger picture and not reporting the bigger picture. And you know, I think a lot of that goes. I think that speaks to the sort of the implicit bias that you're you're sort of talking about. Yeah, and I think it's also about being really consciously aware of and then drawing connections to the the nonviolent protests of of the sixties, of the you know, the modern civil um rights era, you know, going back and I'm you know, my family is Indian and going back to even Gandhi's approach to nonviolence. I mean, it doesn't mean not standing up at all. I mean, it is a very powerful thing, and it is about people coming together and saying no, no more. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot over the past week is, you know, the picture from Baton Rouge of uh, the young woman in a sundress and the three officers in riot gear who were sort of pulling her towards them so they could arrest her. I'm sure you've seen it. And just that juxtaposition of one woman on this, like, cleared highway, right? who was just standing there saying, enough is enough, I'm taking my stand, and seeing how much like law enforcement coverage and force it takes to try to envelop that. I mean, I think it was a really captivating photo you know, for a lot of reasons, but also for that, I just thought it showed again the, um, you know, the power of somebody peacefully in a really nonviolent way standing up and saying, I'm not taking any more. Yeah. And we're seeing that writ large. Yeah. And whether that those actions, you know, that that photo is that is are we getting to see enough representation of that? I mean, you know, I always mm-hmm. think that when something like this happens, this is something that I've noticed in all of these things. It's funny when you start looking for these things, you see them. If you're saying, oh, that's just a crime. Oh, yeah, that's it. You know, but once once you start looking at it from a different perspective and you start seeing that. As soon as like a riot occurs or violence occurs, then suddenly the narrative changes and all of these other aspects of the story disappear. And then it becomes about, you know, the police arresting somebody and then that becomes the story and then that becomes the focus. And it takes it away from the larger issue, the the larger story that's being told of, you know, peaceful protest and, you know, people may people with legitimate concerns trying to change their community. Yeah, I, don't, I, mean, I was going to say, I don't know if you watched the, the FX miniseries, People v. O.J. Simpson. I was I was obsessed with that case back when I was in law school. I mean, that's, that's, I was in law school when, when mm-hmm. the O.J. case happened, and I just thought that the 
the miniseries did this amazing job of, again, putting that trial and the verdict in the context of police abuse, lack of police accountability, of everything that had happened with Rodney King only a few years ago in L.A. And if you don't connect those pieces together, the public, the reading public, uh, who's your audience, isn't going to make those connections on their own. Right. Right. They're not going to they're not going to learn the lesson of these things, of these stories being being told. And and you're talking about the FX series. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was I don't want to say it's sensational, but it was certainly because it was a really good series. I I, I really was riveted to it. And my understanding is the ESPN series that just came out is is also very excellent. But it's yes, that's next on my list to watch. Same here. And but that's you know, that's that's just this shows to go you. I mean, having watched that. You know, it, it. You know, years later, with a degree of, of distance and perspective, and you begin to sort of understand, you know, all the things that are going on there, that were going on there, all the things that w- that were going on in the '60s and the '50s, and and back further back on, all these things are still happening. You get to a certain point, and you're like, oh, the, you know, that was all settled. You know, the Civil Rights Act happened, the Civil Rights protests occurred, those changes happened, everything's okay. But it continues to roil within the American, you know, story. Right. Well, I mean, and I, and I always think that, that progress is, you know, three steps forward, two steps back, that we are, that we are making change. I think there's much more discussion of what, what police accountability means, what it looks like, and what it means to actually have a police and community relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're having those conversations now. I think there are more efforts to engage in, in genuinely community-oriented policing, but there's a certain vigilance that it takes to make sure that we're not going all the way back. And and, and I really think that you can't speak enough about just the heavy net of policing and law enforcement that takes place right. in you know, in, in low-income communities and black and brown communities. And I can say, again, from my work with sex workers, there are trans women of color who will literally be walking down the street and be profiled just for walking down the street, going to buy a carton of milk and be arrested. And that is something that happens on a daily basis. You know, it's about race and it's also about gender. Right. One of the reasons I wanted to, to talk to you about, you know, this letter that you sent out, because I thought it, I liked it uh, for a lot of different reasons. For one, it was very informative. It was like, look, here's here's some things you need to keep in mind as you're covering this story. And I, and I think it's good to, to, to have reminders that, you know, there are going to be people who hear this and journalists who hear this are going to say, oh, I, you know, I follow all the steps. I, I do what I need to do. But, you know, it, it, I think it's important that we we. We, we sort of recharge ourselves and then we, we recommit ourselves and remind ourselves the responsibility that as storytellers, what, what we need to be doing to make sure that we tell the story, we tell the bigger story, we tell all the sides, we make the effort, effort, extra effort. One, you know, pardon me, I'm on my soapbox now, but one of the things is, is you know, we, we've seen media change so much in the last 10 to 15 years. Digital media has, has changed us, and, you know, given given people the power to go out and report and tell stories. And so what is what is it that's going to make us different? It's what's going to make us different is we're the, one, we're the ones that are going to go and, and do the extra steps to tell those, those stories. And that's the only thing we can do. Right. No, and I guess, you know, that's a question I guess I have for you, which is I definitely think that the, the changing media landscape and the 
you know, the shrinking space of traditional places and traditional media employers also has a lot to do with this. I mean, yeah. I think both in good ways where, you know, people are really able to tell their own story. People are able to be citizen journalists and, you know, both report and connect. But then the flip side of it is that the economics are so difficult that, right. you know, it's hard to support really high quality germ- journalism across the board. Yeah. And, and that's an ongoing narrative in, in, in this podcast is that, you know, yeah. On the one hand, you, you as a journalist, you want to say, well, I'm different than somebody who just takes pictures of car wrecks or or a police shooting or something and just post it on, on Twitter or, or post it on a blog or, or blogs about something. I'm different. And it's the things that, that make us different, the important things like, you know, transparency and, and due diligence and and fairness in our reporting. I mean, those are the things that are going to make us different. Now that doesn't mean that's going to make us sustainable. I mean, there, there are lots of challenges that go around to to that, but that's, that's one of these questions that we keep asking ourselves is as journalists is, you know, if journalism is to survive, then what is it going to be? Or, or, you know, how are we going to define our our profession and sustain, Mm -hmm. sustain the things that are good in our profession, even as, the delivery systems are changing. So let, let me ask you a couple other uh, other things here. How do you think journalists could cover these issues better? Well, I think it starts with really getting a sense of leading the story with, again, a connection to the larger context, right? Because individual police shootings are related to systemic over-policing and to historical relationships that are not good between law enforcement and the communities that, that they're working in. So I think starting with that, but then also thinking about whether the story you're telling is buying into unconscious and established biases or whether you're actually stepping in with a new look and and subverting those biases and those sort of traditional notions that do need to be broken down and looked at. And then I think also, because we are in, in such a, a space of digesting our news visually now, but really thinking about the kinds of images and pictures that you include that accompany a story. I also think that, you know, as you noted this idea of them, you know, looking into somebody who is who has been killed by police, who is a shooting victim, or you know, a victim of other sort of police violence, looking into their record with the police and their record with the criminal justice system. Why are you doing that? And what purpose does it serve? And in what way would that be relevant to the story at all? I mean, I think that it goes to whether or not you're actually telling a whole story of a person and then connecting it to the larger issues of racial discrimination and and the larger issues of just, you know, how we've allowed policing to become this place where we try to use the criminal justice system to answer a lot of our societal issues, whether it's, you know, mental health concerns or substance abuse or, you know, or whether it's just people you know, congregating in a certain way, deciding that certain communities don't like that and addressing gentrification, that looking at the criminal justice solution, the criminal justice system as a solution is actually really dangerous and making all of these communities 
much more dangerous for the people who live in them. Yeah. And just to touch on the one thing you were talking about, about using mug shots, you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with looking at somebody's criminal record that, to determine if they are, you know, if they do have a record. But, you know, putting that in context, I mean, if it has nothing to do with who that person is, I mean, and then also going the extra step of telling who, what that person's life is outside of that. And, you know, it's one thing if the person's a convicted cr- criminal, but it's another thing if he's just got a lot of parking tickets or or was caught speeding or with drunk driving. I mean, I don't know. You want to do as much reporting as you can, but you also want to make sure you tell the the whole story. Right, and or that you're telling certain facts in a way that's relevant. Right. I mean, why are you know why are prior arrests relevant? What well, what were the circumstances of those arrests? And you know, why is it that this person was arrested, but somebody who may have been engaging in the same behavior, but is is white or doesn't live in a community that's heavily policed? That, you know, so those people are sort of getting away with the same behavior, if you will. Right, and, and again, these are these are stories that can be difficult to to cover because you know, of, of limited resources and things, but that doesn't mean you, you should stop, use that as an excuse to, to not do your due diligence and to tell the story the, the best way possible and with the least, the least prejudice. You talk about un- unconscious bias. How, how can people recognize unconscious bias in, the, in themselves? Well, yeah, there's a lot that's been written about unconscious bias, and there's actually a test that people can take. I'm gonna let me see if I can find it while we're talking. But I think it's um it's a Harvard test that you can take to test your own unconscious bias. It's pretty interesting. And there's also a guy at UCLA. He um, he was one of our communications institute fellows a few years ago, where he he does a lot of work on unconscious bias and police. Um, Philip Atiba Goff. G-O-F-F, but I think that I've found this. Yeah, there's a test. I think it's Project Implicit. Right. Yeah, I, I, I know that. Yeah, there's that, but there's also, I mean, I think I think any time that we're dealing with people who come from different backgrounds than we do, whether it's racial, ethnic, or gender and gender expression, I think that it's safe to assume that we're all hosting unconscious biases back in that reptilian part of our brain and knowing that, understanding that and and naming that in ourselves as we engage, whether it's directly with other people or whether it's with media that we're consuming. Yeah. You know, acknowledging that to a degree, I mean, it's not like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. And then suddenly, you know, you're not. Uh, it's acknowledging that, that that there are forces that have been in your life that you have, may not have any control over that may have colored your vision, tended the way you see things. And, you know, acknowledging that might be the case so that when you do actually get in these situations and you're, you're writing these types of stories that, you know, you, you should be able to ask yourself, well, is this, is this the best way to tell this story? Am I telling the whole story? Is there something I'm leaving out? Am I, am I not interviewing somebody that I should be interviewing because of prejudice, because, because it's easier not to, but you know, this is one of the things that came out of our discussion about uh, the Baltimore uprisings. It was is is it sort of expands your your view of who your audience is and the people you talk to and engage with. That the more you do that, the, I think the better perspective you're going to have in your reporting and, and just in who you are as a human being. I think we all need to do that. 
Yeah, and I think also in terms of the sources that you're you're looking to, I mean, people who are the most directly impacted by policing and criminal justice policies. Uh, there's an organization called Just Leadership USA, and uh, it's run actually by another former Communications Institute fellow of ours, Glenn Martin, and they are you know, pulling together all these groups of people who are formerly incarcerated and you know, having folks work together on leading the way around reforming criminal justice policies. And I think that's really powerful. So I think the more that journalists are speaking to people who are speaking out, but who have life experience that's relevant and related and on point, I think that only makes stories more rich. Yeah, we did, we just did a podcast not too long ago about a communities in uh, southern uh, Los Angeles, where they had done a um, a study of of the people, and I forget what the the particular nature of the story was, but it was that they had gone out and they had done interviews with the community members, but then there were other people who were in the community. Well, why didn't you come up and talk to me? You know, I'm not involved in any you know criminal activity. I'm not you know this that or the other thing, but I am concerned about my community. I'm you know I'm active in in, in community work. You know. You need to get other voices in to repre- better represent who this community is. And, and again, this goes back to, to the Baltimore thing is just, you know, the, the, the two ways in which that story was covered where you had people who were, you know, maybe outside journalists coming in to cover what they saw as a big story and covering it from the police perspective and, and the mayor's office perspective where they do all those interviews and they get all their information from, from those offices but then they don't go out and they talk to the people in the community. It's something that, you know, that the local reporters have a better access to because these are the people who are in their community that they've had an ongoing relationship with. And, and that's just it. You know, if you're if you're in a community, try try to find different voices and bring them in. You know, this is, this is my final question I wanted to ask you is, you know, how can journalists better represent the humanity of all the victims in these incidences? Well, I think that... You know, looking at the way that, you know, journalism is often about, you know, telling the story of one particular person or one particular group of people. And, you know, when you start with somebody who's who's perhaps been the victim of a police shooting and, and has been killed, doing a more rich look at who that person was and what his or her family was about and really representing the family in a way that isn't about titillation or kind of ramping up of emotions, but actually looking at the connections that we all have as, you know, parents, siblings, children. So I think that's one piece of it, but I also think that, you know, a lot of it is getting a sense of what are other families in this community like and what are their experiences? Are they experiencing some of the same issues? Um, And then I think, you know, another important piece of telling these stories is, you know, so much of attention, I think, you know, it rightfully goes to the fact that it is Black men who are being targeted by the police. But you know, the truth is that this is also happening to black women, to trans women, that there is a real gender and gender expression and sexuality 
component to all of this. And so I think really highlighting that and, you know, journalists can, you know, follow the Say Her Name hashtag on Twitter. And there's actually a really great report that's Say Her Name report that talks about the issues of women who've been killed or harmed by police. But, you know, there's actually a great deal of policing that happens of women around sexuality and of, uh, and of LGBTQ people as well. So I think digging a little bit deeper and looking at this in the context of individual people, family and community is really important. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Ju, thanks for very much for coming on. This has been a really great discussion. And uh, I, th- I think we've learned a little bit and hopefully we'll continue to learn more to maybe change things, make the world a better place. Well, uh, thanks, Michael, for having me. It was, it was uh, nice to talk to you. Next time on It's All Journalism. We all have our challenges, whether it's the journalist, whether it's anything else, and we all are exactly the same. I don't see any difference between a tech entrepreneur, a journalist, my wife who, do, who, who does a TV show, which is a self-employed job, or anyone who's doing a green, sustainable business, or even anybody in a shop. We all have to understand there's a sequence of events that we need to follow to give us an opportunity of success. And the very, very, very first one is market validation. And the market validation is going to tell us if this is going to be just an amazing hobby that we love, which is brilliant, or whether it's going to be something which people are actually going to find enough value in that they're prepared to pay money for it. And if they are, how much are they actually going to pay? In our next podcast, we talk about innovation and entrepreneurship with Brian McMahon, head honcho at Expert Dojo. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by me, Michael O'Connell, Nicola Grisco, and Amber Healy. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.